as a Christian, you have rights. Rights that no person, no past, no problem, no devil can take away. Yet most believers don't know them. And that's sad because these rights are your keys to life, liberty, and happiness. I'll show you. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler here to shut down the enemy's lies in your life. I do it live on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. Join us live sometime, will you? We'd love to have you, and I'd love to hear from you. Do you have a story about how our teachings and tools have impacted you? Let me know through my website at kylewinkler.org or send me a message on one of my social media channels. Jerry from Canada wrote to me recently. She said, my husband and I became Christians in 2014, but even after my salvation, I struggled with insecurities about God's love for me. Every time I would make a mistake, I would beat myself up. When my husband passed away this year, it made me question God's love even more. I felt I was being punished. I came across your website by accident. I've been watching for weeks and can honestly say that my attitude is changing. I feel more joyful than I have in a really long time. Hmm. Jerry, thank you for sharing that. You know, it's the joy of my life to be here. I'm thankful every day to God who has graced me to do this and to those who give to support this. We do this together. We reach people together. If you believe in what we do and want to help this ministry continue to reach more people like Jerry, more people who need to know God's love and who doesn't, would you consider a donation? We are entirely donor-supported. Everything we do is because of your gifts, and they're always tax-deductible and greatly appreciated. You may give now or at any time at kylewinkler.org. Okay. Within minutes of saying, I do, a friend was asked by his teenage nephew, so what does it feel like to be married now? And the guy had to think for a minute. I mean, he just walked back down the aisle. He just said, I do. But he didn't necessarily feel any different a few minutes after saying I do than he did a few minutes before the nuptials. Yeah, he had a joy and an excitement, for sure. But he himself, he didn't really feel like a different person. He kind of felt the same. Even though what happened in that moment definitely changed something for him, both spiritually and legally. For one, he lost his bachelor's and his wife received her master's. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> Think about it. His financial situation changed. His money was now her money, and her money was, well, it stayed her money. Another joke, all right. Seriously, though. I know there are different situations today, but typically spouses share finances and property. A lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Of course, more feelings and physical changes come in time, you know, like weight gain and things like that. That's the last joke I'll make, all right? With the union with his wife at marriage, of course, there were benefits of that union that happened. Like I said, a lot of things behind the scenes, things that would appear later in time, but none of it dependent upon feeling anything. They were all dependent upon his I do. 
and her I do. This is how it is with our salvation in Christ. Paul often referred to it as being united with Christ or being in Christ. The moment you said yes to Jesus, a real live change happened in you. And a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Not necessarily on the outside of you. I mean, I hope you felt a joy and a peace with your salvation. There should be a feeling of relief that comes from knowing that everything rests on Jesus and not you. That should feel good. But as I said a couple messages ago, your hair color didn't change, at least not by God. Your eye color definitely didn't. Your personality probably didn't. I hope you got sweeter, kinder, more compassionate, not meaner. But you probably didn't change from introvert to extrovert or vice versa. You get the point. Yet in an instant, so much happened to you that really did change everything. Everything that means anything. Your sin nature was cut out of you and you received the nature of God. That includes a new heart. That includes the Spirit of God living inside of you to counsel you, to direct you, to guide you. We talked all about that in the last several messages. And as we'll explore today, you received an inheritance. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 1.11. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. Some other versions of that verse say that we are God's inheritance, which changes the meaning a little bit. But really, both are true when it comes to being united with anyone. You are theirs and they are yours. But the gospel is good news precisely for the fact that we get the better end of the deal, I'd say. Besides, the idea that we receive an inheritance, that it's ours from God, is consistent with what Paul and others said elsewhere in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews said we received an internal, an eternal inheritance. Peter said we have a priceless inheritance that is pure, undefiled, and beyond the reach of change and decay. Now, unquestionably, marriage in the New Testament times is a bit different than it is today. So they didn't really compare salvation to marriage like I just did a few minutes ago. I compared it to show you about the instant change that happened, not requiring a feeling, the unity that happens. But really, when you think about the word inheritance, you probably don't think about marriage. Unless your spouse comes from wealthy parents, then maybe you're thinking about it. But even then, it's about parents, right? Or family. And you being a child. Usually that's how it is. An inheritance is money or property that gets passed down to children. And this is really what Paul was getting at, which would have been a revolutionary message for people to hear back then. For one, the idea of people getting an inheritance from God implied that God is a father. Now, they knew God as the father of the nation of Israel, kind of like how we know George Washington as a founding father of America. But it was unheard of, maybe blasphemous, to consider God a personal father. When Jesus referred to God as my Father in heaven, that's part of what sent the Pharisees in a panic to kill him. 
But Jesus calling God his Father is one thing. It was even more shocking back then that Jesus called God your Father and our Father. Yet the Bible says this is precisely what Jesus came to do. In the introduction of his gospel, the apostle John, he said, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, all who said, I do, he gave the right to become children of God. In Romans 8, Paul said, for God's spirit joins with our spirit. There's the union. God's spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And it goes on to say, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. Two words there. He gave the right. He made us heirs. They describe inheritance. But here's where things get even more interesting, especially to we modern Western readers of a very different time and culture. And while I'm on this, I was just having a conversation with a friend just a few days ago. We were talking about translating the Bible from its original languages of Hebrew and Greek into English. And I told him what I often say. Translation is more of an art than it is a science. Especially when it comes to translating text that's more than 2,000 years old. Because you aren't just translating words. You know, that would be more technical, more of a science about it. The harder part, the art, is you have to translate the culture. Because just because you translate a word into English, the meaning of a certain word could be different for us today than it was back then. Like in the case of the two scriptures I just mentioned, the Greek was correctly translated into English to say he gave the right to become children of God. And it was correctly translated to say we are his heirs. But children of God, heirs, right in that context, well, that had a different meaning back then. This is why we have to translate the culture too. And when we do in this situation, to these scriptures, well, it blows open the revelation of the kind of inheritance, the kind of rights that we have as believers. Here's the gist. When the New Testament writers mention rights of a child or becoming a child, having the right to become a child of God, they are describing the Roman process of adoption, not our modern process of adoption. See, there's where words kind of changed again. So we have to understand the culture of adoption back then. It's not the same as it is today. The ancient Roman process that the New Testament writers were illustrating, really, was also called sonship. Earlier in his letters to the Ephesians, Paul said God decided to adopt us. To the Romans, he said you received God's spirit when he adopted you. To the Galatians, he said in Christ you are all sons of God through faith, heirs according to the promise. Again, he's describing this process of adoption, sonship. Both of those are words used by Paul to reflect this Roman process, where a wealthy man selected a young man to receive everything his family has. The rights, the family name and reputation, the fortune, the property, immediately and forever. Didn't have to wait for somebody to die in this case. 
That's why they were co-heirs, joint heirs. Now, why would they do this? Historically, it was to continue a wealthy man's legacy when he didn't have a son. Maybe he only had daughters. So at a high cost to him, and it was a high cost. That's why only royalty did this usually, wealthy people. He would choose somebody to receive the rights to his family. Basically, he'd give them a new identity in doing this. And this new identity immediately rid the son, the new son, of all previous debts and obligations. His slate was wiped clean. To be made someone's child, to become someone's child, to have the right to become someone's child, was like the ultimate stamp of approval. Somebody in royalty trusted you so much to select you to share their wealth and carry on their legacy. Imagine that. I mean, to us today, it'd be like the President of the United States selecting you to share his wealth or his reputation. I guess that's if you like the President of the United States, depending on who it is. But still, who wouldn't want to have their wealth, right? And not after they die immediately. Pretty powerful. And back then, this was binding. It didn't get undone. I go into all this much more in my upcoming book, Permission to be Imperfect. I wrote an entire chapter about what it means to be a child of God, and I detail this kind of adoption in that chapter. But let your mind be renewed with this truth. Anytime you read about being adopted by God in Scripture, it doesn't really have to do with you physically changing parents, as if you weren't already a child of God in the sense that you belong to him or in the sense that you were made by him, I should say. Technically, everyone is already God's child because we all came from him and we all bear his image. Every single person contains the image of God. Everyone. Your adoption means that God gave you his ultimate stamp of approval. It means he gave you his identity. It means that you aren't defined anymore by anything to do with your flesh. It means that your life isn't determined anymore by your heritage or history. God decided this. The Bible says there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female in Christ. They're simply in Christ, union with Christ. You have his identity. And through that union, you have all these blessings, these rights, this inheritance, immediately and forever. Now, will you allow me a little bit of a short rant about this? You've got no choice. I'm going to do it anyway. I have to stress here when I talk about inheritance. God's inheritance is not talking about money. It's not talking about property. It's not talking about wielding worldly power or getting a government. Man, people have perverted the gospel to say things like this for years. God isn't promising you the American dream. If that's the kind of thing you build your faith on, it's only a matter of time before you are let down and feel like you were sold a bill of goods. Your faith is not in God making all your dreams come true. Your faith is in the fact that despite everything about you, your weaknesses and your strengths, your worst qualities and your best qualities, despite everything about you, 
Your faith is that Jesus and Jesus alone makes you right with God, makes you approved by God, accepted with God, and secure with God. Far better than the American dream. It's faith, as I said earlier, that everything that means anything about you rests on Jesus. Okay, and rant. This leads up to Ephesians 1.11, what I quoted a few minutes ago. That because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. Well, Paul opens all of this up, this chapter, talking about these, what he calls spiritual blessings. In Ephesians 1.3, he says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Again, not physical, not fleshly blessings, spiritual blessings. Although in time, they will positively affect you and your environment, yes, but they're spiritual. This inheritance is spiritual. These rights are spiritual. So I want to take a few minutes here, and really the rest of our time here, to detail a few of these spiritual blessings, this inheritance that you have in Christ. Some that you were chosen by God to enjoy today that you don't have to fight for, that you have now. So to go through some of these, we'll just follow what Paul says in Ephesians 1 right up through that verse 11. Right after he said, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, Paul says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now, from this, of course, we could say that God's love is a spiritual blessing, and it is. God loved us is how Paul started there. God's love is a spiritual blessing. But being loved by God is not something we received because of Christ. The Bible says we've always been loved by God. Every human being is loved by God because God is love and we are made in his image. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love, whether you know him or not. So before Jesus died, we were loved. People that don't know Jesus, they're still loved. Now, Jesus proved God's love for us by dying for us. And there's no greater proof of love than that. And Paul said at salvation, God poured his love into our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. But salvation didn't change God's love for us. It changed our love for God and other people. Really, it empowered us since he poured his love into our hearts. It empowers us to love him and to love other people and, I think, to love ourselves too. So that's what changed. And what also changed with salvation is that we were made holy and without fault in his eyes. That's really the big change. The single word for that is righteousness. You can also think of it as rightness. That means without guilt, without shame, more than just as if you never sinned. Righteousness, what God did with your salvation, is he made you as you never sinned. Not just as if. Not like he's looking at you through Jesus' glasses, but the real stinky you is still there. No, 
he made you as you never sinned, completely cleansed of wrongdoing. Like the permanent identity change that happened in the Roman adoption. This describes a permanent identity change. Your sin nature was cut out. Your new nature is good. It's of God, holy and without fault, with no conditions. It didn't happen through anything you did. It was a gift of grace. That's why it's called a blessing, a spiritual blessing. You don't maintain your righteous status by any amount of acting right. It's not about the acting. It's not about the doing. It's what Jesus did. You were made right by grace and are maintained as right by grace. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point anymore because I've already made a lot about it in this series. But I guess the takeaway from this is that because of your adoption into God's family, there's no way that you can change God's mind about you. You are his through and through, and you are clean through and through. It's a done deal. It's God's work. It's not changing. If we keep reading to verse 6, Paul says, So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. We often read this as we belong to God. Like we would say, that person belongs to so-and-so. So-and-so meaning their parent. So, of course, it's true that God is our Father. already talked about that. It's true that we belong to him as his child in that way. We are his offspring. But I want to focus on something that I've never really heard talked about. But it jumped out at me one time as I was studying this. And it really was deeply healing for me and I think it might be healing for some of you too. It's that word belong. To belong is to be connected to something that's beyond yourself. You know, most of us, we've got this desire for belonging. It's that desire to be connected to something beyond ourselves. And really, when we don't have that, that's where loneliness comes. You know, loneliness isn't really the absence of being around people. It's the absence of a sense of belonging, a feeling understood, a feeling connected. And trust me, I've been there. I'm still there at times. I can be in a room full of people and sometimes feel lonely because I don't feel connected with anybody there. And I'm sure you can too. Maybe it's because you don't feel understood or Everybody in the room seems somehow different than you. Maybe you don't feel wanted or needed or appreciated in any kind of way, though there could be hundreds of people around you. You can still feel very lonely, and I think that's actually the loneliest you can feel, is when you're in a crowd and nobody seems to get you. I know you can relate. I felt this way just about my whole life, in school, out of school, even in Christian circles. Like nobody else can understand me or even wants to understand me. Like I'm an outsider breaking the rules. Like I have no crew. Like there's nobody on my path. There's nobody who's on my path to say it'll be okay or here's the way. Well, until you have a real good sense of your identity in Christ, you will try to change things about yourself in order to find that belonging with other people. You might change how you look or how you talk or what you do or at least what you admit to. And it'll be a lot of pretending. And that only deepens the hurt in the long run. Because it only makes you feel more of a fraud, more like an outsider. 
Sure, in the short term, changing something about yourself might give you that instant shot of acceptance. But trust me, it won't last. Because you can't run from you. And maybe it's better to say you can't run from who God made you or how God made you. Because the real authentic you is going to show up. It has to. Because it is you. So how do you cope? Well, you accept the truth that you are fully known and fully loved. Remember, even before God made the world, he loved us and chose us. That's what that verse said there. Ephesians 1 verse 4. That means you don't take God by surprise. Come on, somebody needs to hear this. This is a word for somebody. I'm telling you, you don't take God by surprise. He knew everything about you before he made you. That's called being fully known. Yet he still made you. He still brought you into existence. He still sent Jesus for you. He'll always love you. That's called being fully loved. So knowing, accepting, if you can get this, that you are fully known and fully loved, that's going to help you with this belonging thing. Because you'll know that you were uniquely designed on purpose for a purpose. Designed to be different, as I often say. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't have to belong to anyone or any group. Let me say that again, right into you. You don't have to belong to anyone or any group. It's okay if you say things differently, if you think differently. It's okay if you break the mold or their rules, whoever they are. It's okay if they don't get you. You don't have to belong to them. You belong to God and you belong to you. That means you have belonging wherever you go, in that crowded room filled with not-so-like-minded people, in that church filled with people from every other walk of life besides yours, it seems. When you know who you are and whose you are, you can show up as the person God knew you to be, made you to be, and still knows you to be, and you'll have all the belonging you need. And you won't just have to grin and bear it and cope but you'll feel more alive and satisfied than ever. And that, my friend, is a gift. It's a blessing. And it only comes from God who made you as his masterpiece, created anew in Christ to do the good things he planned for you long ago, before you were ever born. Continuing on in Ephesians 1.7, Paul says he's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Here again, this calls to mind the adoption process. Back then, it cost a wealthy man a great deal of money to make someone his child. I said that already. The son had to be purchased. And when he was, All the debts from his former identity were gone. All the obligations gone. No new debt was acquired. The only obligation was to enjoy the instant blessings and continue the legacy. Freedom. Forgiveness. That's what Paul's describing here. With the blood of his son, God himself paid the highest price so that you can have this inheritance of freedom. Freedom that nothing about your past is held against you. Nothing has to be paid back. The debt is cleared. And if that's not incredible enough, 
Nothing about your present is held against you either. This is binding. You don't have to worry about tripping up and losing your freedom. God isn't the cosmic sin police waiting for you to make a mistake so he can fine you into submission or arrest you as a punishment and then maybe let you go after you prove yourself or earn your way out. No, he paid too great of a price to risk that. That's an insult to Jesus. So he made it so there is no risk. Remember, he made you right. He regenerated you, regened you, as I've been saying in the last couple of messages. You got a new spiritual DNA, new identity change. Sure, the devil can accuse, and he will. Expect that. That's all he can do. People can accuse, and they probably will too. Seems like that's all some people can do, especially on social media. The world might require things of you, yes. All of that remains true. But what's truer than true is that you are safe in the arms of love both now and forever, safe. As you continue through the rest of the chapter of Ephesians 1, Paul mentions wisdom and understanding. He says that the guarantee of your inheritance is the Holy Spirit in you. We talked about that in the last message. True wisdom and understanding comes from the Spirit in you. He's the counselor, the advocate. That wisdom and that understanding, his counsel, is what is the mind of Christ. And you have it. You have all of it. As one adopted by God, united with him as his co-heir, you have everything that means anything. So let me read you your rights. You have righteousness acceptance, approval, belonging, forgiveness, freedom, and the Holy Spirit in you who promises to never leave nor forsake you, your advocate, your counselor, who offers you any time access to the best wisdom and counsel there is. That's your inheritance. Those are your spiritual blessings. You're going to stand for any rights, stand for those because you don't have to fight for them. You can't lose them. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about them. Your inheritance is here, whether you feel like it or not. It's here. It's yours. You already have it. It's not even until death will you part because you are God's and he is yours from here through eternity. The Holy Spirit is God's greatest promise. Yet the Spirit has been shrouded in mystery for years, and His power and purpose have been misunderstood. Not anymore. With my teaching series, The Advocate, you'll discover everything that the Holy Spirit has to offer. This four-part series includes the following messages. Five lies about the Holy Spirit, the real role of the Holy Spirit, the key to intimacy, and God's gifts of grace. Ready to experience the full power and purpose of the Holy Spirit in your life? Get The Advocate series on four MP3s today at kylewinkler.org slash advocate. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Each and every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get your social media. 
Don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. And I'll see you next time.